What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering podcast featuring New York sports talk. I'm a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. we got a good show for you this week. It's going to be a two-part week. We're going to do the NBA draft preview this week. We're going to be joined by Ben Pfeiffer of the Prep to Pro podcast. We're going to break down the draft, some top prospects, What's going to go off the Wolves at one, the Warriors at two, the Knicks have two first-round picks, Nets have a first-round. We'll talk about all that with Ben in just a bit. We're also going to do the Mandalorian recap on this podcast. I'm going to be joined by my good buddy, Nick D'Alessio. We're going to recap the latest episode of The Mandalorian. That's going to come at the end of the podcast. NFL picks will come in a separate episode later this week because we want to get this out to you guys before the Jurassic have time to listen to the interview, analyze everything. But we'll get it all started with our opening tip where we're going to take a look at the New York Mets' big move of bringing back Marcus Stroman right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. We are back here, opening tip time, talking Mets. And the Mets got a big move done in free agency right away. Marcus Stroman, right-handed starting pitcher, accepted the qualifying offer, and now he'll be back in the Met rotation next season. A huge win for the Mets, who desperately need starting pitching behind Jacob DeGrom. Going into the offseason, really only had two guys in the rotation you could count on. Obviously, Jacob DeGrom, who finished third in the Cy Young loading, and David Peterson, rookie left-hander. Can't count on Steven Matz after what he saw last year. Noah Syndergaard, we don't know when he'll be ready. He was throwing off a mound recently, but coming off Tommy John, you don't know when he's ready. Getting Marcus Stroman back as the number two starter here was huge because it takes a lot of pressure off the Mets to get a front-end starter in free agency. I'll get to Trevor Bauer and man. I know they're flirting with each other in the market, and Sandy Alderson's making some moves his direction, and Steve Cohen's talking about spending the money, and Trevor Bauer's excited, but if the Mets needed a front-end starter, they did get one with Stroman, who's pitched here. He did pretty well here in his 11 starts at the end of, at the end of uh, 2018, 2019, excuse me. And with him, the th- key is, like, he's a good ground ball pitcher. They're going to work on improving the defense up the middle. He'll be fine. And put him number two, potentially going number three when Noah Syndergaard is ready. That's a good start to rotation right there. They're going to get more starting pitching. I expect them to add a guy who can eat some innings. Maybe another guy in there who can, you know, sort of give them insurance on the back end because right now Seth Lugo is penciled into the rotation. They're probably a better team if you put him in the bullpen where he's been more successful the last couple of years. As a starter, he's okay. He's been good at times, but he got hit hard two of his last three starts last year after he got stretched out. Part of that's on the Mets for making the dumb decision to stretch him out in the middle of the season, but... You can't really play on Seth Lugo being a starter for the whole year because when's the last time he's thrown a significant amount of innings? More than 100. Back to 2016. You can't count on him to be a every start guy for the Mets. The smart play for the Met rotation is you know, go get two more starters, 
you can put them in with Strowman and Jacob DeGrom and Peterson. When Noah Syndergaard is ready, he most likely would bump Peterson out, which is not the worst thing because Peterson has some issues with innings. And you don't know if he's able to give you enough innings to go a full 162-game season. We're going to assume it's 162. That could change because of the pandemic, depending where we are by the time opening day rolls around. But assuming there's 162, Dave Peters is not throwing enough innings to get you there. Getting two more starters in here, they don't have to be high-end. You can get two quality arms in there. One, say maybe three or four starter. One veteran who can eat some innings. Maybe you take a flyer on James Paxton on a one-year deal. Hope he gets some lightning in a bottle. Those could be good moves. The Trevor Bauer thing is interesting. Because Trevor Bauer has, obviously he's won the Cy Young. He's a very controversial figure. He's very out there, very opinionated. Sandy Olsen the other day went on Carton and Roberts on WFAN, and he said, you know what? He's got the personality to do well in New York, and I'm in the entertainment business. Trevor Bauer went out and said, you know what? Sandy gets it. I'm an entertainer. That aspect is forgotten in baseball where all the stack geeks are just looking at spreadsheets. I can be a big factor in the city, and I mean, there's an article out today on MLB.com where four of five writers surveyed said he would end up on the Mets. That would be interesting because that was not the direction I thought they would go. I thought they'd focus more on George Springer in terms of getting a center fielder in here. But if Trevor Bauer wants to take a high-salary one-year contract, that's something you could really make happen. Because if he decides, you know, I want one-year $35 million, you could do that, reset the mark, and then go for it later. And the one-year deal is never a bad idea, especially the pitcher, because you get the opportunity to have a highly motivated pitcher in a prime year before you test the market again. And you could also have the pitcher say, you know what, I can build this performance, cash out, and make even more money going year to year as opposed to locking into a committed salary. You could also say Trevor Bauer says, you know what, maybe I can parlay this into a long-term contract and you could have a rotation starting with Jacob DeGrom, Trevor Bauer, Marcus Stroman, Noah Syndergaard. That's a rotation that you could go deep in the playoffs with. They do have some other issues to address, though. There are rumblings they're trying to go for a star level outfielder. The one that makes sense here is George Springer, former of the Astros. It kind of feels similar to the Lorenzo Cain free agency a couple years ago when the Mets did not go in on that deal over concerns of how he'd age. I think the key with Springer is, like, if you're getting him for a five-year contract, if he's good in center field for the first three years, you're good because then you can just move him to a corner of the last two. Right now, he can still play center field with the best of them. And this team has not had a center fielder, a two-way center fielder, since Carlos Beltran was straightaway in 2011. George Springer would be a huge help because he would shift Brandon Nemo over to left where he can actually be a competent defender as opposed to being exposed for playing in center. You would bolster your infield defense by putting Jeff McNeil at third, Cano at second, Dom Smith at first, Pete Alonso being a DH most of the time. That defense would improve significantly, and that would make them very scary. Another scary possibility is the fact that they might be the favorite to get Francisco Lindor in a trade from the Indians. Because right now, Cleveland, they're going to move him. They're not going to pay him $20 million this year. They're not going to sign him long-term. And you look at the teams that could be in the mix here. The Mets are one of the most obvious trade fits on the market. Because they have the kinds of young, major league, zero to three players that the Indians covet in these trades because they like to control. And the Mets can protect their top prospects 
and get a star in here and sign him long-term. So what the Dodgers did with Mookie Betts last year. The Indians might take a package of, say, Ahmed Rosario, one of J.D. Davis or Brandon Nimmo, and a pitching prospect that's not your top guy, not your Matthew Allen, not your J.T. Gins. Say you trade them one of Thomas Zapucky or Josh Wolf, as Jim Duquette speculated the other day. Andres Jimenez could be in this deal instead of Rosario. You could put together a good package here and potentially get Lindor via trade, Springer via free agent, and then fill out the rest of your holes with like more moderate free agents, like your James Paxton flyer. You get Austin Romine to pair with Tomas Nito behind the plate. You could really do a good job here in just one offseason. And the possibilities are endless. And the fun thing is they can do whatever they want. They can say, does it make more sense for us to sign George Springer? Does it make more sense for us to go sign Terry Bauer and build the super rotation again? Does it make sense for us to sign JT Realmuto and help the whole pitching staff that way? They can do whatever they want. And it's a lot of fun. They are not going to be drunken sailors, as Steve Cohen said. They're not going to go sign all of them. They can pick and say, we want that guy. We're going to go get hit that guy because money is no object to us. We will pay him and we'll beat out other teams to get his services. And A's are noticing, you know what? The Mets have cash and the Mets want to spend it. We will wait and see what the Mets want to do. That's a fun position to be in. That's going to be fun to track as the offseason goes forward. We'll get to our Met offseason preview in a couple of weeks. We'll see where they are, see where they're going. But up next, we'll do our NBA draft preview with Ben Pfeiffer of the Prep to Pro podcast right after this. Basketball is my favorite sport. I like the way to dribble up and down the court. Just like I'm the king on the microphone. So it's Dr. J and Moses Malone. I like slam dunks and taking it to the hoop. My favorite play is the alley oop. I like the pick and roll. I like the give and go. Because it's basketball of Mr. Kirch's Right, we are back here getting ready for the NBA draft on Wednesday. Join me today to preview the draft a little bit. One of the hosts of the Prep to Pro podcast, Ben Pfeiffer, is on the line. Ben, Mike Phillips here in New York. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Glad to have you on. I got to say, it feels a little weird having the draft in November as opposed to June, but I'm glad it's finally here. Yeah, it's been the longest draft cycle ever, so I'm just excited for it to be done at this point, but also excited for what's going to happen. Yeah, I am too. And I've been keeping track of a lot of the draft stuff. And it feels like the sentiment around this class that it's much weaker than some of the more recent years we've seen. What do you think from what you've seen about this class? Yeah, I mean, the main thing is it just lacks high-end star power. Um, you know, even last draft class, which was, you know, classified by many as weaker, had, uh, you know, bona fide future MVP level talent, Zion Williamson. Um, this draft has no one of that ilk. So that's the main reason. You know, I, I believe Lamelo Ball is the best prospect in this draft, but even he has you know significant questions. Um, There's not to that level really. And then you know, I I think like there's you know, kind of even less like depth in role players in, like the second round than a lot of classes. I think like there's going to be a chance to get good players and good role player values just because of where teams value certain guys, um, especially in that like 10 to 25 range. But in the second round, there just aren't that many enticing gambles, like even compared to like most years. Yeah, for sure. You know, you just mentioned it. You like LaMelo Ball the best in this class. Why do you think he's your your favorite guy on the board? Just, I mean, six foot seven, 
and you know very young and, and a, a special passer I and mean, has one of the most creative ambitious you know genius passers hits every single pass in the book with incredible accuracy timing you know full court outlets pick and roll passes all of it's there and elite ball handler as well um just so creative um, so so shifty with his handles, um, and then you know I think there's some potential as a score. Uh, I love his his runner game. He has elite floater touch. Um, the jumper, yes, has questions, but I, I I think it can definitely be good enough. It doesn't have to be great for his goal. I think it could be good enough. Um, and then defensively, I mean, right now he's definitely not great, um, no doubt about that. But I think there's definitely potential for you know just someone purely as as smart as Lamelo on this team. He's like decent athletic tools. I think as he immatures and improves technically, I think he would be a decent defender. So that's just kind of the elevator pitch for Lamelo. It's someone like who I think can like legitimately kind of like run a good offense. And that's I think the only, the only player in this class I can really say that about. Yeah, I think a lot of this class, what I've seen, feel like here's something great they can do. Here are some issues with that. I feel like that's sort of the case. I feel like Anthony Edwards is another example of that too, in terms of like. He can score, but he may not be a great fit on some teams. His defense is questionable. I feel like that's sort of the mess I've gotten on him. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a thing with a lot of the class. I mean, Edwards is back. Yeah, Edwards for sure. I mean, just about the wire with him. Like, can you get him to commit to playing good defense? Like you said, I mean, he's got tools, but the, I, I don't think he's ever going to be a major plus defender just because I think he lacks that, you know, high-end feel for the team defense side. But can you get him to lock in? And on offense, you know, he has all of the scoring tools and talent to be a high level off high level, you know, score. Uh, but can you get him to, you know, commit to going to the rim more and getting more easy shots and drawing more fouls? I mean, that, that, that's, really, that's really the big thing with, with Edwards as well. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go to the top of the draft right now. The Minnesota Timberwolves sitting there with the first pick. We've heard rumors. They want to get out of there. It doesn't seem like they're going to be able to, if they are sitting at number one, where should they go? Where do you think they'll go? I think they probably will go LaMelo. And that's, I think uh, considering realistic options where they should go, um, I mean, I, I I don't love the fit with D'Angelo Russell because I think Russell, you know, isn't that great off ball. Uh, Lamelo giving Lamelo room to like really grow and, and make mistakes and fail kind of isn't what the Wolves are looking to do if they're looking to you know make the playoffs and contend. And also, the defensive core of you know Cat and D'Angelo with Lamelo right now is pretty ugly. But I think just the best class in the second class in terms of yes, the Wolves want to you know win now, but you also with the first pick in the in the draft, have to look towards upside and look towards your future. And Lamelo, I think, uh, I don't know, they seem to be committed to D'Angelo. Um, but I mean, assuming, you know, you know, I personally, I would, you know, be very happy with a core two of Cat and uh, Lamelo. So I think Lamelo is where they will go and where they should go. I was going to say, assuming they can't trade the pick, which I'm sure they're trying to. Yeah, I'm sure they're trying to. Another team that's trying to trade their pick right now is the Warriors at number two. Again, that's not many teams seem to want to go up. A lot of teams want to go down. The Warriors at two. The thing I've heard most of them is James Wiseman as the second pick. Do you think that would be a wise choice for the Warriors there? Um, no, I don't really think that would be a, a smart choice. I'm not a huge fan of James Wiseman. I think of him more as like a mid-team prospect. Um, I just don't really think he has the feeling that a lot of people seem to have. I mean, I think he's a good prospect. And I think, you know, just being as large and you know, physically imposing in the open floor as he is, there's certainly room for him to be, you know, a, a good NBA center, you know, is going to do this, these things effectively, like, you know, protect the rim just because of his size and, um, and you know, rim run as a, as a roller and transition on duck-ins. Those are all things that raise a team's floor, but I think, you know, he's not skilled enough or intelligent enough or really has, like, you know, the most, the, the highest level athletic tools that I think 
be a really special big man. That's kind of what you need to, for me to take a big man early. So, yeah, I wouldn't really like the Warriors taking Wiseman at two. If they're going to take a big man, I'd much rather have Onyeka Okongu. Uh, and even then, I'd have my issues with that. Yeah, so where do you think they should go at two then, if you, if you were making the pick? I'd probably just take Anthony Edwards, assuming they stay. They put, I mean, there are there there are prospects who I think could contribute more immediately, like, you know, Denny Avdia, Onyeka, Kongu, like I said, Devin Vassell. But I think with the number two pick, you still have to consider, like, your future and long upside. Um, I think it would be a waste to just, like, take someone for the short term because you can get someone comparable in free agency, um, you know, with without the, the upside of the number two pick. So I think Edwards, well, yes, he gives you that long-term scoring upside that you want with the number two pick. Um, you know, if he figures things out, it could be a really potent score. And I think the Warriors are kind of as good a place to extract early value as possible. You know, have how he's an excellent cutter already. Just commit him to cutting, using his athleticism to get easy buckets at the rim. Um, you know, in the Warriors' motion-heavy offense, get him. You know, shooting spot up. Hopefully, playing in a smaller role can can help him walk in on defense more. So that, that's kind of that, that's where I go with the Warriors. So I definitely would understand taking someone like um, like Vassell or Onyeka that just maybe has a lower ceiling but is you know a, more of a contributor because the Warriors are a team that is wanted to contend right now. Yeah, they definitely are. I do feel like one guy who's sort of risen up the boards of late, again, somebody who does not get a lot of love because a lot of the guys that just produce in college don't get a ton of credit, especially when they're seniors. Obi Toppin seems like he's topping at number five on the boards. He's like the Cavaliers seem like a good fit there. What do you think about Obi Toppin as a pro? Uh, I'm not a huge fan of Obi Toppin. Um, I, I mean, there's no doubt that he's going to be a really good offensive big man. I mean, the the passing is elite. The finishing is elite. I think he's going to be a good enough shooter. I think as a complimentary big man, he, he could definitely excel. The, the big issue um, is the defense, which I just really am not a fan of. I you know I, I think he's going to struggle to play the five because he, he, his mobility means that I think he's going to struggle to defend all of the pick-and-roll coverages. Um, definitely not able to you know switch or play on that perimeter, and I think he'd be a decent rim protector because he can get up really high. But he's a load leaper, meaning you know he takes a lot of time to jump and, and you know, reach 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 the height of his jump. But I really worry about that defense, um, like because the offense is very good, no doubt. But I think it's not good enough. Like he's fundamentally to be a complimentary big, or you know not a big who you can really run a great offense through. And I mean, yes, he's only a sophomore, but he's you know twenty two or already senior age, which is a really important factor when you're considering upside. So, I mean, I think Obi's a good prospect. Um, probably going to be a very good offensive player in the NBA, but just not the one I take in the top five. Yeah, let's get to my team. I'm a big Nick guy. The Knicks are sitting there number eight in this draft, and they fell again. That's not a big deal in the lottery, but what do you think the Knicks should do at number eight? I think their best option, well, I, I say two ways. One, I think if Killian Hayes is there, uh, you absolutely taken French uh, point guard, played at Ulm in Germany this year, just an elite passer, um, elite elite defender on and off the ball at six foot five, and has improved a ton as a scorer and athletically, both on his drives and as, as, an, as an off, as you know, a pull-up shooter. I think if you can't get Killian, which I think you maybe can, but I think if you can't get, like, because the Knicks aren't going to get, like, their you know, initiator or guard really in this, in this class, I think you just kind of stack up on more complimentary pieces and hope, you know, you're bad. They're almost certainly going to do bad again next year. And hopefully you can land on the top of the 2021 draft, which is stacked with, you know, potential initiators like Cade Cunningham and Brandon Boston. So I would go with, like, a complimentary wing type. Like, Devin Vassell would be a dream if you felt Florida State wing. Just a special team defender. Patrick Williams, another one. Another Florida State forward. 
who's just a really impressive rim protector with some complementary offensive skills and just one of the youngest players in the draft. So I think that's kind of the direction I would go with, you know, kind of just like a complementary role player type that I think can really help you down the road, but might not help you so much right now. Yeah, I've, never, I've been keeping track of some reports coming out of them lately from the Athletic on the Knicks side. There are two names that are linked to them you did not mention recently. Kira Lewis from Alabama and Tyrese Maxey out of Kentucky, given the Kentucky ties there. Do you think there'd be a reach if they took one of those two at that pick, or this would be better for them to trade down and try and get one of those guys at like 10 or 11 back mm-hmm. in the lottery? I think both would be, both be fine. Uh, I mean, I mean, honestly, Maxey, I think, is a top five prospect. I've said that the whole year. I think he's wildly underrated. Just an elite, you know, high-level, three-level scorer, uh, really, really great guard finisher with, you know, I, I think the shot is going to be really, really good despite, you know, what people may say or what his three-point percentage says. Awesome defender as well. I prefer him to Kyra. Kyra, I think, is good as well. Um, you know, just in, the speed is unbelievable. I think best as like an off-ball kind of guard, attacking closeouts, shooting spot-up, secondary pick and roll, which is kind of what the Knicks, I think, eventually are going to need. Um, so, yeah, I, mean, I wouldn't hate either of those. I would think both of those are pretty good picks. All right, that sounds good. Let's go then down to the Nets at number 19. And obviously, not looking for somebody to come in and be a big star right away. They could use somebody to be a good depth piece. Where should the Nets be looking here? Yeah, I think you just kind of look like more like real role players that can contribute in a playoff setting. Um, and the guy who I keep coming back to for that is, is Xavier Tillman, Michigan State big man. Who, and when it comes to like bigs, so like, like things you want out of bigs in the playoffs that aren't stars. Like you want quick decision makers on both ends of the ball. You want strong players. You want guys who can. You know, really smart defenders, and Tillman is all of that. Yes, you know, their concerns as you know, a six-eight big man who's not a great shooter is definitely concerning. But you know, a brilliant passer, uh, elite big man handler, great finisher, elite team defender with you know who makes incredible rotation, rotations, instantaneous decisions. I think he he would kind of be a, an awesome fit for Brooklyn. Um, it's just another rotational big who I think can really make an impact in the playoffs. Maybe more than any of the bigs they have on the roster, like soon in his career. So that would probably be like the direction I'd go for the Nets, looking for like some some kind of player who can like contribute, you know, be a, be useful role players, you know, next to their star power. All right, talking to Ben Pfeiffer here at the Prep the Pro podcast. Go back to the Knicks again, number twenty-seven. You figure obviously they take a wing or a, a big at the top or the point, they'll go the other direction at twenty-seven. What were some guys down there you think could make sense for them? I think you know I, I would love to see them land someone like Leandro Bomaro at potential dash. Um, I think he's, I think I think that would be a steal for him. I, I view him higher as that. Just a six foot seven with um, really elite ball handling and passing. I think the second best handle pass combo in this draft outside of Bellow Ball. Um, and then you know this the big selling point is he's an elite guard defender. The, the footwork, his ability to get through screens and nearest point of attack, and you know. Also, his ability to make rotations and plays as a team defender. That's all so high level. And he's, and he's doing it as like an 18, 19 year old in the Euro League, which is all the more impressive. Um, yes, he plays like a lot of the competition lower level, and the scoring is a big problem for him. I think he really has to develop um, some sort of on ball scoring if he's going to hit the star potential I think he has. But again, I feel like an upside bet. Um, so I think like that'll be a smart get for the Knicks, is, you know, a draft and dash type. Um, or just, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the direction I'd go for New York. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting direction. And last thing I want to get to is obviously we got we always have some fun trying to figure out the sleepers in the draft. For me, I always look for like those tweener kind of guys who are productive in college, may not have the right fit for the pros, end up usually being pretty good rotation bench guys. Those are kind of sleepers. Who are your sleeper targets you would look at in, in the late first, early second round of the draft? 
Yeah, I think one of the big ones is, is, is Killian Killy, uh, Gonzaga big man. He has fallen down board almost entirely because of his kind of scary injury history. He's always been injured going back to before his Gonzaga career, um, which is, you know, that's a legitimate concern. He might really never be able to stay in, on an NBA floor consistently. But if he can, you're getting a tailor-made modern NBA big with elite big man shooting, passing, handling, all the perimeter skill you want in a complimentary big man. And then defensively, super smart, moves well despite, you know, not moving as well as he once did with the injury. He's just such a talented big man. And even if you can get him playing, you know, even if you you, you can't get like a fully healthy Tilly, but someone who can, you know, play 60 games a season, that's crazy valuable, I think. So he's, yeah, he's the direction. I, I, you know, I direct most people in terms of like sleepers in this draft. Yeah, my personal opinion, I want to get your take on this as well, is like, I was a little bit of bias as a big, a big Michigan State guy. I think Cassius Winston's going to slip in this draft because he's undersized, but I think he does enough things where he's a good floor leader. He can run offenses. He can shoot decently well. I think he'll be a good backup big backup point guard in the NBA for a long time. Yeah, I like Cassius Winston. Um, I mean, he's you know, an elite shooter, one of the best shooters in college basketball over his career, no doubt, and a high-level pick-and-roll playmaker. I worry that with like the size and athleticism deficiency is like without a ball screen, like I'm not sure that he can really score or get to the rim or carve out space on offense for himself. And then defensively, I just think he's going to be pretty bad, uh, which are my main issues with with Winston that kind of like make him like more of like a early second. But I honestly like 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 if it seemed like the Lakers or someone like that that or the Sixers really needed shooting and scoring and and playmaking out of the pick and roll, took him in the late first. I would totally be okay with that. Yeah, it'll definitely be a fun draft on Wednesday. Ben, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you, how can people follow you on social media and keep up with your with your podcast? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Ben underscore Spicer underscore. Uh, I host co-host the Preps of Pro Pod and be a draft podcast with my friend with my you know friend and host co-host Max Carlin. We have weekly draft stuff. Um, you know, every single multiple episodes a week now leading up to the draft, and then going to have lots of episodes prepping for college basketball in the 21 draft and one more thing we're going to be having a, a live draft show on twitch so if you want to come come hang out ask your questions about whatever team you're a fan of uh when they're drafting and hear our reaction and analysis and stop by you know that'll be recorded on my twitter and our twitter uh the pod twitter is at prep number two pro pod so that's where you can find me find the pod all right that all sounds good man ben thanks for the time really appreciate it absolutely thank you all right, and there you have it. That was Ben Pfeiffer previewing the NBA draft. A lot of good insights from Ben. Again, be sure to check out their podcast, the Prep to Pro podcast. Check out that Twitch stream if you want to get their insights on the draft night. Ask your questions to them. Up next, we're going to go to our weekly Mandalorian coverage. We're going to recap episode number three with Nick D'Alessio right after this. We are back here on the podcast talking about episode 11, The Mandalorian, The Heiress. And joining me today to do the weekly recap of it, a voice we've not heard on this podcast in a while, but people, long-time listeners are familiar with this guy. Nick D'Alessio is back. Nick, how are you? 
I'm great, Mike. How are you? Doing pretty good. Nice to have you back after over a hundred episode hiatus. Yeah, I was gonna say I, I didn't even think about it until you just mentioned it. It's been uh I think the the what was it, the March Madness picks with Will Smith like yeah, that, back, last year. <laughs> yeah, back when March Madness actually happened. Right, yeah. So yeah, not, oh wow, not even this much. That's right. This whole year has been a blur. So yeah, two marches ago. <laughs> yeah, so how's everything been? Good. Yeah, good. Can't complain. Uh just doing pretty much the same thing everyone else has been doing, working, trying to stay healthy and safe. So, Yeah, that, I, I hear you on that. And we're going to talk about The Mandalorian today, episode number three of the season. And what's your background of the show? How would you get into it? So I, um, I guess the, the Mandalorian or just Mandalorian. Star Wars in general? Man, man, just Mandalorian. <laughs> um, just Mandalorian, right, yeah, because uh, I don't know how much time we have to start going into Star Wars in general. <laughs> um uh, yeah, I think, uh, pretty much right when it first launched, I saw the trailers and, uh, specifically that one scene in the trailer when, um, Mando like pulls the guy into the door and then shuts the door on him. And then it like does a hard cut. That's when I was like, Oh, Oh, I need to watch this show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a sucker for anything Star Wars anyway. So once they have, some really awesome looking Mandalorian armor and a show based around a Mandalorian. I, I was instantly like, as soon as I saw the first trailer, I was like, this is something I need to watch. And I, I didn't have Disney plus, but I made sure that I got Disney plus specifically for this. Yeah. This is the one that gets you into Disney plus and first season was great. First two episodes this year. I feel like everyone agrees that the premiere was awesome. Episode two kind of. eh. Yeah. Yeah. I think cause the, the premiere, which I'm sure you've talked about in previous episodes already, so I won't go too in depth. But they take down a giant friggin' worm dragon, <laughs> and that's the, that's awesome, you know. And then uh, episode two is just kind of, hey, let's get this frog lady to her husband, and then they don't even do that, and kind of, yeah, it's it's kind of a setup to the next episode. So sometimes the setup ones aren't as entertaining. So yeah, yeah. I also want to say about the shout out to episode one like episode one again the premiere is like that we i don't know how big of a nice old republic guy you are that was a direct shout out to that game with the crate dragon is was that a nice old republic reference okay yeah yeah because yeah, I, I remember thinking like i i didn't want to be like oh i remember that from the video games or something but i was kind of like was, that looks really familiar <laughs> it literally is from the video games there's that one side quest on tatooine where you go and you have to kill the crate dragon with cal nord oh okay Interesting. Okay, it's funny then because it's it's so much of like the extended Star Wars universe is which is now what Legends. Yeah. Uh, it's like they're. Uh, it seems like they're trying to be like, hey, some of this was actually good, so we're we're gonna make this canon again. Yeah, I think the way I look at it is, I feel like the Knights of the Republic games are definitely canon because that's way before the established like universe of the show and the movies. But like, I feel like any of those old novels that took place pre post Return of the Jedi, those have all been written off as Legends. Okay. Yeah, because the, the even Kotor goes a lot into um, like the Mandalorian Wars, and like that's more relevant now than it ever has been. So, yeah. Yeah. So let's get into the episode itself. I'm gonna put the spoiler warning up for the audience. If you have not list, watched episode th- eleven yet, the heiress, make sure you hop out, check that out. Unless you want, don't care. We're getting spoiled. So here we go. <laughs> All right, you've been warned. You can get out. You can go watch the episode. And I think, I think honestly, this might be the best episode of the season, Nick. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to say the premiere because there was a lot of action right off the bat. But if you think about the bigger picture, this is the one that you'll probably look back on and think, oh, man, a lot happened in this episode. Yeah, a lot did. And, I mean, we pick up right from where we left off in episode 10 where the damage Razor Crest is trying to land on the planet tracks to bring the frog lady back to her husband. And they say he did not stick the landing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't remember season one being this funny. Yeah. Maybe it was. Maybe I just need to rewatch it. Yeah. But there's like a whole lot of funny little things that happen, even down to like how many of the frog lady's babies did Babies go to eat. <laughs> like they don't address that at all, and she no. doesn't seem upset that her her. You would think she would know. She makes such a big deal that this is the last of her kind, the last of her line. And does she not know how many eggs are in that thing? Yeah. Like from what I can tell, I think he eats like four of them, right, or five of them. I don't know. Was, he even eats one in front of her. You might have even more when she was asleep. Yeah. So, but yeah. So it's funny. I like how the um just to go back into the humor that the the port guard guy or whatever, the one that's watching the ship go, he's just completely unfazed. The ship's yeah. coming in way too hot. Yeah. And then uh, finally you're like, Oh no, Mando's a great pilot. He's going to land it. And then it just stops right before. And then just the slow tip into the water. Is, I was like, I actually left. Like that was actually funny. Yeah. They did that great shout out the music too, where they play up the swell. music. Like, he's going to pull us up. And then he's just splat into the water. And you see, you, yeah. see, you see it being like basically like, like picked up by the the uh, Star Wars version of a tow truck. That was funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For him to, if you think about how long and difficult that was to go sub light speed all the way to there, and all this crap that they went through, and then finally it comes down to him splashing in water and getting towed. Yeah, <laughs> like that's actually funny. Like I, said, I don't remember the first season being funny, but yeah. maybe I just need to rewatch it. So. Yeah. I was like another funny moment in the episode. I know they try to play it as heartwarming, but the way the music plays when you see the frog lady see her husband from across the port and they, they, and the music yeah. just swells. They kind of do the slow motion running on the beach like, reunion with each other. I just thought that was so fun. Yeah, that, that was like one of the few moments where I was like, what are we watching right now? <laughs> Most of the stuff involving the frog lady, because uh, in the last episode, I was, I was talking about it with you just a little bit off air when like, when she's like, she speaks off into that cave and she's taking a bath. Like, that was kind of uncomfortable. Like, I was yeah. like, what are we watching right now? Amanda's just picking up her eggs and throwing them in a jar. Like, the whole frog lady thing. It, it, it. I guess that you need to make the show if it's just constantly, just dark and 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 gritty. It it could get old. So I guess they throw that dynamic in to mix it up a little bit. Is this frog lady was weird? I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I will also say the props to Mando for, for span looks like it's about a span about two days learning learning her language. Now he's able to communicate with them effectively. Oh, you know, yeah, you're right because she like hacked into that robot to talk to him. But yeah, by the end of it, she's she's understanding him and he's understanding her. Yeah, yeah, they did that so casually. I didn't even realize that was what was going on. But yeah, yeah, I guess he did learn the language. Yeah, he learned it quickly. We see he asked the husband like, "I'm looking for a Mandalorian contact," and he doesn't need the translator. He doesn't need to get somebody to explain it to him. He figures it out, and then they go to this bar to basically get information. And it was cool to see the Mon Calamari Admiral Akbar species show up again. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess that's the way that they speak was not specific to Akbar. That they all yeah. kind of have that. It's a trap kind of voice. <laughs> yeah. Definitely do. He goes to the bar anyway. They like 
You see, bait, I got our first fun baby Yoda moment of the episode where he gets the broth and then he gets attacked by the uh, squid in the broth. And man's like, don't play with your food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, like, it, it, it's almost like having a small child. Because actually, did, we, did they ever confirm how young baby Yoda is? Or, yeah. yeah. He's, I mean, everybody, call, everybody, everybody calls him baby Yoda, too. Like, he's, he's he, not baby Yoda, but that's just he, what we reference him as. <laughs> Yeah, he's 50, which I guess in terms of Yoda's, actually, Yoda's like 900 when he dies. So I guess technically this, this is a baby. Right, so he is, he is a baby, yeah. yeah. So yeah, again, just that, that little bit of humor that they're having, like, I guess a small child with this this seasoned, hardcore, military type person. It's just, it's a funny dynamic, yeah. Don't play with your food as the food is trying to murder him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, he finds out, like, he meets the guy, and the guy says, I know where you can find Mandalorians. They bring him out to the open seas, and I think I think my friend John Snagger points out, like, do you remember another time where she had a scene on the sea in a Star Wars property? I don't know. It's definitely unusual. Right? Yeah. Yeah, because they, they can fly. So, yeah. like, why do they go in water? <laughs> and, uh, and guess what? There was a trap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I wish I had pulled the Admiral Akbar clip of him yelling, it's a trap, because it was a, would have been appropriate for this episode, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, so he goes, and then the ship basically has this killer mammacore on the ship, and the Quarrens basically trick Mando to go on there because they wanted to steal the Beskar armor. They they fling baby Yoda's canister into the mammacore. Mammacore eats it. Then they fling Mando in there, and he gets himself trapped under the grates. He's about to get basically killed. And also, we have a Mandalorian squad come in, save the day, basically murder all these Quarren. One dives into the Manticore and gets Baby Yoda out of there. And this this is pretty cool. This fight. Yeah. Did you have very faint like Power Rangers thoughts when they swoop in and they just start like punching everything because it's Disney? There isn't like any gore, really yeah. any like major violence, I was like, oh man, the Power Rangers are here. Like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that that was the moment when, as soon as I hit Baby Yoda into the Mama Corp pit, I was like, oh, oh no. Like, obviously you know that Baby Yoda's not going to die and you know that Mando's not going to die in this episode. But I like that they make the stakes. Like, there's been multiple times now where both of them were in pretty bad danger so it's not like they're it's not like they're just you know beating everybody up and taking names like they're 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 grinding through it pretty hard and had the other Mandalorians not showed up like who knows what would have happened I don't know if he would have gotten out of that. Yeah, we got to talk about these Mandalorians because three of them show up and then at the end you tell he's excited because he's seen Mandalorians and you can tell that without him taking the mask off. But then they take their helmets off and you can tell even without looking at it he's seething because he's like this is not the way. And then we yeah. we see. Yeah, yeah. Back to the other guy that took off the mask. Yeah, he that, that goes against everything he believes in. Yeah, yeah. And then we found more about this group. We had this group is the led by Bo Katan of the Clan Crazy, who was played by Case Ackoff of Battlestar Galactica fame, and they get some big actors on this show now. Yeah, she's. I, I believe she's actually the voice actress that plays the same character in the Clone Wars and yeah. Rebels. I yeah. believe. Yeah. Um, which I, I guess I should make this full disclosure now. If you want to take my Star Wars fandom card back, you can. I've actually never watched all of Clone Wars or Rebels, so there's there's a lot in that show that I don't know. But as far as just general lore for the for the for Star Wars in general, 
I know a lot of the major players just from videos and reading stuff and other sources. So I like without knowing the show, I still know who this person is. So when 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 she, when she takes off the helmet, I was like, is that going to be um like Bo? And then obviously later on you'll find out whether or not she is or I guess it was already spoiled that she is this is a spoiler talk. So when you find out the name later on, I was like, Ah, okay, that's where they're going with this, okay. Yeah, so she tells Mando that she was born on Mandalore, she fought in the purge, now the last of her line, and basically they have an argument about the the fact that they can take the helmets off and then she has something interesting to say. Basically says that Mando is a child of the Watch, which they call a cult of zealots that broke away and reestablished the ancient way. And Mando says it's the only way. So, again, I think we have a lot of interesting talk about the fact that Mando has to keep the helmet on. And now they're claiming that that's sort of like a cult, basically, he's following. Right, right, because Mando's been our hero this whole time. You know, and yeah. yes, he's a little chaotic neutral. He's not necessarily a good guy, but he's trying to do the right thing. And then it's revealed like, oh, you're actually from a cult of crazy people that are trying to, like, make Mandalore great again. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, like, so, like, once you find out, you're like, oh, that actually explains a good amount. But then you see from last season, like, his, his, his group that he was with, like, they're all just such, like, honorable, like, they mat- the code matters to them. So it, it paints that, like, maybe, maybe what Bo-Katan and those, them, that sect that they've interacted with was bad, but yeah. not necessarily everything about Mandalore and the way he believes is a bad thing. Maybe it's just people take it to extremes. So it's, it's too early to know if, what the implication of that's going to be, but it's really interesting to know that Mando, Mando is kind of from a crazy cult. Yeah. It is interesting. And then he basically, they basically ask him to, to come along with them. He says, screw you, I'm leaving. He basically flies back. He gets himself into another ambush where the dead Quarren's brother and his gang try to kill him. And then he has to get saved again. Wait, wait. So it's not a good look for Mando this episode. How did he know that he killed his brother? Yeah. Like, that was fast. Like, did, they're on a boat in the middle of the ocean. Like, how did he know the brother was dead right away? That's a very good question. That's a very big plot hole because, like, there's, as soon as there's no communication going on here. Right, because and then and then the girl and then yeah, obviously then the Mandalorians come back and bail him out again, and she's like, "No, I killed your brother." And the guy's just kind of like, "Oh, well, okay, well, I'm gonna kill you too." <laughs> you know, it's like, how did that information get passed? Unless, unless you know, there's a chance somebody was stashed away on that boat, or they had a video feed, or I don't know. There's there's a million reasons as to why it was happening. But I just thought it was funny. I was like, "How did he know?" Yeah, he that's a good question how he knew. But anyway, it doesn't matter. They they wipe the floor with them. So Mando now owes them twice. They go grab a drink and basically they make a deal because they reveal that their mission, the the Mandalorian group, is that they're trying to reclaim black market weapons that have been stolen from them and they want to try and reclaim Mandalore and they basically make him a deal, say, Hey, you help us get them back get some back from an Imperial battleship and you can and we'll point you in the direction of a Jedi to help bring Baby Yoda back to his kind. I think that's a free fair trade. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we saved your life twice, so you help us out. And M- Mando's not one for not making deals because that's kind of been this whole season so far. And even last season was, right, yeah. I need to get from point A to point B. And in order to do that, I need to help these people and, <clears throat> and do this. And then I can get to the next point. So all in all, Considering what he could, that he has no leads, has no idea what he's doing, helping some of his own kind steal a ship 
or well, no, at this point, it's not stealing a ship. It's just stealing stuff off of the ship, right? Yeah. And then, so yeah, uh, there's there, there's worse deals that could have been made. So yeah, obviously, like, he's, he's, he makes those kind of deals all the time. It feels like every episode, you know, this okay. Mando rolls into town. He has a problem. Mando has to solve the problem. Get a little closer to his direction. Get information he needs. Yeah, you know, it's it's when when you, when you say it like that, it's almost like the formula at this point is starting to get a little bit stale. But with all of these new things that they're dropping in, all of these like new characters, all these implications, it's kind of like, oh, things are about like things are about to get shaken up pretty in a big way. And like, yeah, that's I'm 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 glad that they're now kind of putting a slight twist on it, <laughs> and I'm excited to see where it goes. They also do a good job creating these interesting side characters. You want to find out what their problems are and what, how Mando can help them. As opposed to like, oh, here's, like, I think Frog Lady did not work for that reason. That's why I don't think that episode worked. But, like, this one, you're, like, invested. Like, ooh, like, why do they need the, the weapons? Let's see what they do. Right. And then the, that weapon, like, that's that saber that, that, like, black sword, yep. that lightsaber thing that, um, what's the name, Moth has at the end of last season, right? Yep. Like, Yeah, we'll get to I'm that. He's a, okay, we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We'll get there. Before we get to this battle on, on the cruiser, though, we do have to account for Baby Yoda because it's too dangerous to take him into. And I thought it was hilarious that we had to have the, the frog lady babysit Baby Yoda. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I'm like, oh, man, is is he going to – he's going to eat some more eggs. It's yeah. just – it's going to happen. He eats everything. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm like, oh, God, he's going to eat the eggs in front of them, and it's going to be this whole thing. But uh, I, I don't think that ended up happening. But, yeah, just, just when you thought you were done with frog lady and frog husband – they come right back in. <laughs> yeah, and Mando does tell him. He said, "Hey, mind your manners while you're here, because he knows that he's gonna try to eat the fries yeah. again." Yeah, or even the. Yeah, it's funny anytime, like Mando addresses the fact that Baby Yoda's murdering her children, yeah. but nobody else does. Even uh, when when they're scooping the eggs out of the bath in the second episode, Mando just like hits Baby Yoda. And he's like, "No, you don't do that. No." <laughs> yeah. They definitely don't do that, but we'll get back to that story at the end because that's actually get pretty funny. But we get to this battle on the cruiser, and we see the, the team. The plan is they have to basically fly out of the ship while they're ascending out of the port because the rules say they can't jump the light speed until after they clear the airspace. And the the commander on the ship is actually played by Titus Wellover, otherwise known as the man in black and lost. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm a, were you a big lost guy? That's cool. Um, I I watched all of it once, and then I watched like the first three seasons again a second time. So yeah. a big enough fan where I you know got lost, but uh, yeah. not enough to recognize a lot of characters. But now that you say that, yeah, that does sound very familiar. Yeah, for those who are a bit separate from Lost a little bit, like the human form of the smoke monster—that's who Ty as well ever played. Ah, uh, okay, all right. Gotcha. Yeah, Jake, okay. Jacob's brother. That's a simpler parlance. That's who he played. Right, right, okay. Anyway, we get through this whole thing. We get the fight on the ship, which is about the last third of the episode. I think that was probably one of the best battle sequences of the entire show. Yeah, yeah. Did they, did they, I don't, I don't remember if they made a joke about it, but did the Mandalorians kind of joke about how, like, the Stormtroopers have terrible aim? Yes. Or one, did, I, yeah. did I imagine that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah one of them says, like, <laughs> okay. he's like, He's like, they can't hit the broad side of a speeder. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, oh, because they said that before it was revealed that it was stormtroopers. So I was like, are there going to be stormtroopers on this show? And lo and behold, it's like dozens of stormtroopers, and they don't hit a single one of them once. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, they yeah, but that, that that whole action sequence, yeah, was was 
wild. I like the the slow progression up from each thing, and you see like it almost. It's funny because the entire time so far, Mando is the one who's like the badass guy kicking kicking everybody's butts, and and, and this time he was kind of trailing behind a little bit like he almost couldn't keep up with them and i thought that was interesting to show yeah it definitely was because now he's actually in people in his own weight class and now he's not like having to deal with outmatched bounty hunters yeah exactly yeah so anyway like i think one of my favorite sequences of this of this whole thing is like when they're going towards the armory and then they let themselves get trapped in between the armory and like the other hall they were in and right yeah the, the armory commander like like calls calls the captain and he says hey like we got them trapped, and he's like, "Where?" And he's like, "Between the armory and the other hull." And then your captain's like, "Like that was not like, a good where? idea." <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. and all of a sudden, you see the car, the car, the cargo hole open. Every single trooper in there just flies into the air. I'm like, "That's brilliant." <laughs> yeah. I think yeah, I, yeah. What, what did he say? He got the cargo release is where they trapped yeah. him. And yeah. then, like, in your in my head, I'm like, "Cargo release." Yeah. And then, yeah, and then they just watch eat them out of the ship <laughs> yeah that's what i just really burst out laughing when i saw that i'm like this is brilliant <laughs> yeah I, I i again like this this show's kind of funny now yeah. and like even, even even like a moment like that this is like pretty much the climax of the episode like this this epic um choreographed kind of action sequence and then and then it ends up with them just getting ejected from the ship in a funny way so yeah yeah that, that whole sequence is awesome yeah, it was awesome. And we get we see them in the armory. We get we see them get the weapons, and then uh, Bo-Katan basically like blackmails Mandalorian again. And says, "Hey, you want the information now? We're gonna take the entire ship. We're not just gonna take the weapons." And he gets really annoyed, and she's like, "Hey, like, I like you want the information. This is what we gotta do." And I think he does have much of a leg to stand. So they save his butt twice, not just once. Yeah, yeah. And then she plays a "This is the way" card. I think. Yeah. And um, you you, you can tell that bothers him because when the the way for him is very, very honorable, strict, honorable. Yeah. yeah. And she's clearly like, if you know a little bit about Bo and the, what's happened, the events that took place before this, this episode, just in the extended stuff, you can, t- I think she's at a point where she's willing to do just about anything that she needs to do to get back into power. And that doesn't, go along with Mando's beliefs. So I think that's a seed that's been planted for a future conflict of some type, I think. Yeah, it is. And we also hear from Moff Gideon, who we last saw at the end of season one. He talks to the commanders, and he basically tells uh, Tice Welber's character, like, you know what to do. You can't let them take the ship. And then he basically offs his two pilots and is going to kamikaze the whole ship. So brutal ended those two poor little pilots. Look like they had no idea what they signed up for. The Empire, man, they... But the little bits that are left of the Empire, they're they're ruthless. Like yeah. I, I, it's I, I love seeing that because like your, your your knowledge of the Empire is if it's from the movies, you know you know they're evil. But when you see him being like the ship's captured, we can't save you. You know what you got to do. And he takes out two of his own men and is ready just to take his own life too. Yeah. Like that's that's some intense stuff right there. That's that's you you sign up for the Empire. You, it's it's not about you. It's a much bigger thing, and I think that's it's it's good to see that the enemy is still well. It's not good to see that the enemy is still that functioning. <laughs> if you're mad, no. But I'm just saying from a storytelling wise, like just because well, 
just because I was going to say just because Palpatine is gone, but yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, um, it's uh, it's it's they're still going strong. Yeah, I think in terms of the timeline, it's an interesting point because I think that there's still a fragment of the Empire. I think this must take place the series prior to the Battle of Jakku for, that was referenced in A Force Awakens. So I think like this this prior this is prior to the real fall of the Empire. I think this is still the period where the New Republic exists, but we have all the remnants trying to salvage power for the Empire. Right, because this is after Return of the Jedi, right? But yes. it's before The Force Awakens, and I think that's where it takes place, yeah. So, right, so just because you cut the head off off of the Empire doesn't mean that there's still remnants of it that you need to clean up, and that those remnants are still going pretty strong, as you can tell. Yeah, they, they are, and then we get this epic sequence where they're trying to fight their way into the cockpit, and we see that they got, like, a garrison of stormtroopers there, and I thought this is Mando's moment to shine the episode where he basically says, cover me. He takes all the fire and basically runs to a hail of somehow accurate blaster fire from stormtroopers, but manages to throw two, gra- <laughs> two grenades into the, into the ranks. Just kills all of them in one shot. Yeah. Well, as accurate as stormtroopers can be, because they only hit his armor. They didn't hit the soft spots in between the armor. Yeah. So the, the one time that they're accurate, they're still not that accurate. But yeah, that, uh, that armor is for real. Like it's, you, you you know when when they make it, it's a big deal, and then you see how strong it is. I mean, how many times does he get shot and hit, and it, yeah. it just bounces off of him? But it, it gives a good, like, this is why when people see that armor, they want to double-cross him, because that stuff is for real. Yeah, it's really dope. And they get to the cockpit, and then we find out, as you mentioned earlier, that Bo-Katan is looking for the Darksaber, which is a big, like, Clone Wars plot point, and we saw Moff Gideon has it at the end of the season, and... Ty's Welliver's character takes the electric suicide capsule, which looks a very painful way to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, just to show you how how the Empire is not messing around. Like yeah. they would rather die than even give any bit of information. And, and granted, he said, I think he said something along the lines of, "He's like, well, if you don't kill me, then they will." Yeah. So he's like, "I'm just going to do it and not tell you guys anything." Um, but yeah, that that dark saber that's that's going to be. I believe it's whoever's in possession of that becomes the Mandalore, like the leader of the Mandalorians. And I think that's why she's desperately trying to get it back. So that's, that's going to be interesting to see which direction that moves in. Yeah, we, we do get that direction. They offer Mando a spot to stay. He says, no, I have my own quest. I have to complete. And then they get, they do an interesting name drop there. They, they mentioned Ahsoka Tano also from clone wars fame. So yeah, she's. I know she's like a fan favorite. Like everybody loves her, and and you know it's it's funny. Like you think you're done with the Skywalkers, right? And then oh, here comes uh, Anakin's apprentice or Padawan or I, I. Like I said, I didn't watch the full show, so I don't know the full relationship. But I know she's fought alongside Anakin and and Obi Wan, and like when 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 they said there's Jedi around, you know, I'm thinking which Jedi are still alive right now yeah. at this point. Because you got Luke, and that's it. That's that's about it. I mean, you know, Leia's force sensitive. You know, Luke eventually trains her, but like, so I'm like, are they gonna bring a Skywalker back here? But no, they bring the one that trained under Anakin, and I'm like, interesting, because the Jedi that's going to be in this now left the Order and the Council, and she's kind of like a rogue Jedi. So I I, I have no idea where they're gonna go with this. But that was, that was a very interesting name to drop to call back to yeah. previous stuff that had happened. Yeah, we're going to see her very soon, I'm sure. And I do think we're going to see this Mandalorian crew again. I would not be shocked if we see them again before the end of the season. Oh, yeah, yeah, big time. There's going to be 
everything is going to come to a head. Like all of these little pieces that you're getting introduced to little by little, it's, there's going to be a moment where they're either all in the same spot or in the same battle or it's, it's going to come to a head. And I, I, I'm, I'm so curious to see where it goes. I also think we're going to get Frog Lady again because based on how much they use her in this episode, I feel like they like that character a lot. Which character was that? Frog Lady. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they really like Frog Lady. So, and, you know, Frog Lady's actually, uh, she's like a pretty good hacker. She just hacks into that robot like pretty easily. So, who knows? Maybe she might actually be pretty useful. <laughs> yeah. And we'll go back to Frog Lady for a minute because we do get a little bit cut in of like Baby Yoda hanging out with them. He's, we see him just watching the baby, watching like the baby frog hatch. He's like, just like in awe of it. And then he's like playing with the baby frog. That was like another very fun baby Yoda moment. Yeah, and, and I'm thinking, man, just don't eat it. Don't yeah. eat it, baby. <laughs> don't eat it. <laughs> yeah, but he's, like, not interested in eating it. He, like, wants it to be... Basically, he wants to have the the, ba the baby frog as a pet. Yeah, oh, right, yeah, because, yeah, I think uh, Mando said something along the lines of, we are, I already have enough pets, yeah. right? Like, so... Yeah, so we... That oh, yeah, who knows? Maybe, maybe that frog baby might be important. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe that the, all the frog babies has. They have some sort of incredible, like, life's, like, incredibly fast, like, development cycle. And at the end of the season, they come up and there's, like, an army of frog warriors ready to help Mando fight whatever fight he needs. Honestly, like, who knows? I mean, you know Baby Yoda's Force-sensitive, so maybe, like, well, A, he's so fascinated with it because he wants to eat them. But, like, who knows? Maybe he, like, actually, like, senses something about them, like, too soon to tell. I don't know if that's a stretch, but possible it is possible and we get to the end of the sh end of this episode and now we see him flying off we see him going to try and find ahsoka to know and i wonder if we're going to get there next episode we're going to see him sidetracked again like kind of what happened with the episode one thing with the boba fett where we saw him looking we never got to him again okay so i i, I don't know i didn't listen to the first episode of spoiler talk because I, I i only caught up last night that's boba fett right yes it is like, is that pretty much confirmed that guy standing at the at the, the end of episode it, one, that's Boba Fett? It, it's the same actor who played Django Fett. We know that Boba Fett's one of the Django clones, so. Right. Yeah. Okay, and and that armor that the guy had in the first episode, that was Boba Fett's armor, right? Yes. I'm like, Even, I, I, the, I'm, I'm watching it, and I'm like, is every Mandalorian armor Boba Fett's armor? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I was like, that looks a lot like Boba Fett. So, okay. Yeah. So, interesting. I, I think I would not be shocked. If we have another like something sidetrack us before we get to Ahsoka to know if there's a big poll. But again, we are halfway through the season, so I wouldn't be shocked if we get to her next episode. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it happens next episode. I think that I think that Boba Fett reveal is going to come into fruition. I think like can, can I go into a little bit of a sure. like a fan the a theory here? Sure. What I think is going to happen? Like yeah. I think that Boba Fett is going to. A, try to get his armor back because I just think he, you know, why else would he be there on Tatooine if not looking for his armor? And then I think he, now that he knows Baby Yoda's a thing, I wonder if he's like, I failed the Empire once before. Here's my chance to get back in their good graces. I think he's going to maybe try to kidnap Baby Yoda, and then that's going to be a confrontation. I don't think Boba Fett's going to help out Mando. I think it's the opposite. I think Boba Fett, I mean, how, how long was he in a Starlight pit for? Yeah. I guess you can come out of those. I thought nobody makes it out of those, but... Oh, and, I mean, you know when they said that, that dragon ate the Starlight pit? Yeah. I wonder if that has something to do with Boba Fett's release. Yeah. Or maybe that's just a reference. I don't know. Anyway, side, side tangent. I think Boba Fett's going to try to kidnap Baby Yoda, try to get back in the good graces of the Empire, and that's going to be a couple-episode arc of that confrontation. 
Yeah, that's gonna be an interesting theory because a lot of people have always assumed that they're gonna work together. But you think, but this thing could take a made those be of opposition of each other. Yeah, I think I think Boba Fett's been burned by the Jedi and the Rebellion too much yep. to where he's like, if he has any chance to help the Empire, I mean, the Jedi killed his father, yep. and you know, <laughs> the Jedi are responsible for him almost dying, him losing his armor, him losing everything. So, I I don't see a scenario where he helps them get to the Jedi unless he kind of plays along to get two remaining Jedi to then turn on them. But I don't think Boba Fett, I think Boba Fett either is already evil or he turns heel. I don't think he's going to help out for very long. Yeah. Let's just, let's get, let's wrap this episode up here. We'll get the last funny point in here, which is we go back to the razor crest and we see at the beginning of the episode, that the Mandalorian paid the Mon Calamari a thousand credits to fix the ship. And basically they just put a bunch of duct tape on the ship. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, the guy, you know, to, to, to the guy's credit, he did say in the beginning, he's like, I can make it fly. Yeah. He never said he was going to fix it. He, he's, he's like, uh, I'll do what I can, but I'll, I'll make it fly. And he did make it fly. But yeah, he did put on, he literally just put like rope and duct tape and yeah. <laughs> bubble gum, whatever he could find, and just shoved it back together. But it, 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 it's flying, so. It is flying. It is a very interesting, very interesting ride. I wonder when we're actually get this ship fixed, because I think that's the sort of limits where we can go storytelling wise with the Razor Crest being half broken. Yeah, so I wonder if that's how they go back to Tatooine because he knows the the girl with the droids that can fix his ship and he trusts her. So I wonder maybe, and Tatooine's not that far. So I think maybe they go back to Tatooine and that's when what I think is going to be the Boba Fett arc starts to happen. Yeah, and, Pel- and bringing Pelmod back again for another episode would be fun. Yeah, yeah, I, I like her character. I like her droids. I, I, I think they, they have a, a good dynamic with Mando. So bringing her back again, I don't see any problem with that. Also, I think the best part of this episode, very tight 35 minutes, which is like they gave you a lot for the time you were watching the show. Yeah, you know, I, I ended up watching them. Um, I've, I've just been so busy. I watched all three episodes in one sitting. Yeah. Um, and yeah, by the time I got to the end of that, I was like, oh, that that was it. I thought this was going to be like, I felt good at the end of it, but I, just, I thought it was going to be a little bit longer, but it didn't need to be longer. It didn't like they're not stretching any unimportant details out there they're just like this is what we're doing we got a lot of stuff to get through let's move on now <laughs> yeah yeah it's a very very fun show nick thanks for all the time i really appreciate it before i let you go how can people follow you on social media keep up some of the stuff you're doing oh okay um so if you go to twitch.tv slash the recovery room um that's my twitch channel that's where the um i do a lot of live streams and through that, there's links to Twitter and Instagram and YouTube for any previous streams that you may have missed. It's all archived on YouTube. And yeah, if anybody wants to check out, hang out with me, play some video games and chat, yeah, twitch.tv slash the recovery room. All right, check that out. Nick, thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. All right, and that will do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Ben Pfeiffer, for calling in to preview the NBA draft. That was a lot of fun, good conversation there. I want to thank Nick D'Alessio for taking the time to recap the latest episode of The Mandalorian. A fun episode again, and it's going to be an interesting season for The Mandalorian. We're almost halfway through, and the storyline is starting to move together. We're going to get some ideas going about what could be happening in the future. we got a lot of big pieces on the board. It's going to be fun to see where this goes. If you want more stuff like this podcast, including my look at the latest rumors surrounding the NHL's return to play. Remember, we haven't heard much from them. I've worked down what I've seen so far, what we could be heading with them, Check out the blog over justendthesuffering.wordpress.com for all the latest there. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. 
Simply search for Just End the Suffering on your favorite podcast. You can find all episodes there. You can also check out my YouTube channel, Mike Phelps on YouTube. You want individual conversations from the podcast up there as well. You can check out my conversation with Ben Pfeiffer about the draft on YouTube. Just search for Mike Phelps on YouTube. All those podcast conversations are there. If you have your feedback and star ratings as well, it'll help make this podcast even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. Coming up later this week on the podcast, we're going to do our Week 11 NFL picks with Troy Moriello. We're going to do an NBA draft recap and more. Until then, stay safe, everybody. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.